the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The Word to Stand On for Life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show as we begin a brand new week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the Word to Stand Up for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions, questions about the Bible, questions about church, questions about stuff going on in your life, uh, anything and everything. All we need you to do is to call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you are driving in your car and it's wet in some places in our city, the safest way to do it is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, this is our men's retreat week. We've had a flurry of signups here right at the end. There's still some room if anybody wants to go. Um, all you need to do is you can go to calvarysa.com and sign up, or you can call the church office at 658-8337. Um, but what I'd ask all of you to do is to be praying. You know, we've, we're really expecting God to do something really neat, and, and just to know that people are praying for us would be a wonderful, wonderful blessing. So that's coming up tonight here at Calvary Chapel. Uh, we've got our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies. You can make a family night of it at 7 o'clock. Pastor Ken will be teaching the men. Paula tonight will be teaching the ladies. They begin a new book. Ken is actually finishing the book of Acts. This is his last study. Uh, but Paula and the ladies will be starting in Philippians chapter 1. And that's always a great study. So all of that is tonight. And then the high school and junior high schoolers have their own Bible studies going on at the same time. Okay, let's get to some questions while we await your phone calls. The first question is really an interesting one from John. And he says, hi, Pastor Ron. So I'm curious, in light of Romans 13, 8, we're... Were our so-called founding fathers right to launch a revolution against King George um, the Third and Great Britain? If yes, what implications does that have for Americans in 2021? And if not, can it be said that we have an illegitimate government, at least by God's standards? John, that is such a loaded question. And, uh, you know, we don't have any answers. Now, here's one of the times when I think about all the things that have happened, right, wrong, or otherwise, and then I think about God. Now, now Paul and I, we have a term we use, we call it Rubik's Cubing. You know, God will take a mess of a Rubik's Cube and and fix it in just an instant. Well, that's what he's done with the American Revolution. I think by the the strictest interpretation of Romans chapter 13, uh, the United States of America was in rebellion against the government authorities. Now, they could have been all kinds of reasons and, and justifications for it, and I'm sure that, uh, that, that there was some righteousness uh, in, in the cause. But here's what God did, and I think this is where our focus needs to be. God simply took 
an act of rebellion, and he used it to accomplish his purposes. Now, I've been criticized for saying this before, but I believe with all of my heart that the purpose of the United States from the very beginning and the reason God allowed that rebellion to be successful. Remember, God wasn't fighting for us. He was, wasn't fighting against them. I think God simply used this as an opportunity as God has used nations of evil nations in the past to accomplish his will. The United States of America was given birth in order to be Israel's protector. Now, we look back 250, almost 300 years, and we think, well, well, that, that was a long time ago. It was a long time ago, but, but God was setting things up. And we have served our purpose as, as a nation. We have been Israel's greatest friend, their biggest protector. And in 1948, when things were right, uh, the world was remorseful over the, the Holocaust being revealed and six million Jews being slaughtered. And it was just right. You could see, if you look closely, it's almost as though you could see the Lord moving in the backgrounds, putting all this together. And Israel was able to uh, return to their homeland, Jews. It's never happened before after even a few years, after a decade, that here we are, thousands of years away from the promises God made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And God allows Israel to return to their homeland and be a nation again. That is, I think, the greatest miracle of our lifetime. And yet, with all of the opposition, I mean, they're surrounded by nations that have have uh, purposed in their hearts to destroy them, to wipe them off the face of the earth. And they can never do it. And the United States always played a critical role in being that protector, being being sort of the big brother, the blesser of Israel. And of course, we know they've had wars, the 1967 war, the 1973 war, and God gave miraculous victories. Well, the United States has always stood behind Israel, and as long as the United States was doing that, I believe, John, that we were covered by the blessing of God. But that began to change. You can go back three administrations, and it began to change. And especially under Obama's administration, it began to change radically. And I think we can all see that the blessing of God, the glory of God, has departed from the United States of America in part because we've abdicated our role as Israel's protector. Now, directly answering your question, uh, I think by the strictest interpretation, yes, it was a rebellion against King George. And I don't think that was right. But we also need to remember that this was not a Christian nation. I think we Christians, especially conservative Christians, we have a tendency to think, I want the good old days back where where our nation that was founded under God and by God serves God. Well, well, our nation has never been that. We fulfilled our purpose with Israel, as I indicated, but we've never been a Christian nation. And um, God simply allowed it, as he's allowed so many other things in the past, and he used it to accomplish his will. I think for Christians, John, that ought to make each and every one of us so confident in not only God's sovereignty, but his power and the efficacy efficacy of his plan. So, yeah, I I think it was a rebellion. Um, People won't like the answer, but um, I think Christians, among others, simply did what they want to do, and I guess that's the history of the world doing what we want instead of doing what God wants. One of the things that we have to remember is it's our responsibility always to obey our government unless and until they ask you to do something that is in contrast to what the Word of God tells us to do. John, thank you for that question. I really appreciate it. Here is a question from Ray. He says, if someone is a good person has a biblical worldview, but isn't a follower of Jesus, will they go to heaven? Ray, Jesus said in John chapter 14, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, and let me emphasize, no one comes to the Father except through him. He's the only way. So 
Uh, it doesn't matter if someone is conservative, they have a biblical worldview. It doesn't matter if they pay their bills, if they give to charities. None of that matters. Sin is against us. Sin condemns us unless our sin is covered by the blood of Jesus. So that's something we've got to understand. That is just the way it is. And no one's going to heaven apart from being a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. Now, in God's mercy and his um, compassion, his, his love for us, he's very patient. We had a question last week on the program and I talked about the, the, the deathbed conversions that I've been on. I mean, literally, somebody gives her to Jesus and dies. Um, um, God is patient. I, I always marvel that he'll take somebody like my dad. My dad was 84 when he died. He never considered bowing a knee to Jesus. He fell. He was in the hospital. I had a friend who was in the same city go to see him. And he led him to receive Jesus Christ. I showed up the next day as soon as I could get a flight. And I just wanted to make sure that he knew what he'd done. And my dad was asleep. He woke up. He saw me. We had a three-minute conversation. Dad, do you remember my friend coming, Derek? And he said, yes. He told me about Jesus. I said, Dad, did you ask Jesus into your heart? Do you know what that means? And he said, yes. He forgave me of my sins. My dad drifted off back to sleep and never woke up again. Now, how good is God to wait that long to keep knocking on the door of someone's heart so Ray uh, Jesus is the only way to get to heaven one other comment on this and I'm going to comment on this Ray not because of you brought it up but, but because we get this kind of a question and sentiment so often um, do you remember what happened when the rich young ruler called Jesus good teacher Jesus was startled. He looked at him and said, Why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. Now, Jews understood that. We Christians, I don't know why we don't understand that. In our flesh is nothing good. We are enemies of God until we're born again. So, Ray, somebody may be better than me. Somebody may be better than you. But that doesn't mean they're good. We are sinners condemned from birth. And the only way to escape that condemnation is by the blood of Jesus Christ. So I want that to be clear, Christians. We need to have a more biblical view of the world that we live in rather than an emotional view. So many people, because it's hard to justify a God that would send somebody to hell forever, we just sort of diminish the, 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 the fact of hell. So that's important. Thank you for the question. Matthew says, Pastor Ron, you recommended a book last week by a man named Gail. Uh, can you repeat his name and the title of his book? I can, Matthew. That's Gail Irwin is his name, E-R-W-I-N. Uh, and his book that I recommended was The Jesus Style. It is available on uh, Amazon and uh, I'm sure other places as well. Uh, his website is Servant, Servant Quarters, and uh, you can order the book there as well, and you'll not be disappointed that you got it. It's In fact, if you call him or you contact them via uh, their, their contact list on their website, um, um, and, and you can just Google his name or you can go to Servant Quarters, uh, he, he'll give it to you for free, I'm sure. Just tell him you heard Pastor Ron say on the radio, recommend the book, and, and he'd be happy to send it to you for free, Matthew. But it is a wonderful book and gives you an insight into Jesus I promise that you've not heard from anybody else. Jesus being the most others, in fact, the only others-centered person who's ever walked the face of the earth. He is a dear, dear friend. I love him with all of my heart. Hope to see him again soon. He's getting older and I'm getting older. I hope to see him again soon before we both see one another in heaven. He is a wonderful man. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Nelson. Jesus said we have to give up everything to be saved. Why don't you and other pastors teach this? God will hold you accountable. Um, Nelson, Jesus didn't say that. He said it to one person, but you weren't that one person. I wasn't that one person. He said it to the rich young ruler. And the reason he said it to the rich young ruler was because the rich young ruler had made an idol out of his wealth. 
It's okay to have possessions, but when possessions have you, Nelson, then you're lost. So he said to the rich young ruler, the rich young ruler, you'll note, walked away sad because he had great possessions. The whole idea there is that he was living for his wealth. That was his safety and security. Jesus said, no, you've got to get rid of everything that's going to keep you from trusting completely in me. He was unwilling to do that. So it is very, very judgmental of you to say God's going to hold me accountable. I could say the same thing about you. Now, I'm willing to give you the benefit of the doubt, Nelson, that you just don't know any better. But study your Bible. Study to show yourself approved. And don't expect any Bible teacher to teach that in order to be saved, you have to give up everything. In spite of the fact that a lot of people do give up everything. And I can tell you personally, when Paul and I came here, we had no safety net. We had nothing at all when we came. And we trusted the Lord and he's been faithful. But see, he'd stop being faithful if I told people to be saved, you got to give all your money away. That's not what he said. I have it on good authority, Nelson, that Jesus is in actually in favor of wealthy people as long as the wealth doesn't get in the way of their relationship with him. Those are the people that he trusts and gives the gift of giving to, and they support a lot of ministry that goes on in this world. Believe me, uh, we've had our fair share of those wonderfully generous people. And uh, they tried to give away stuff. God just kept giving them more stuff because he could trust them with their stuff. So your approach, Nelson, is not only unbiblical, but it's based on a works orientation. The Apostle Paul himself said that's not even a gospel. That's not good news. So I hope that corrects you. I hope you receive it in the spirit in which it was given. This is an anonymous question. Is it possible to love someone, spouse or kids, as an example, too much if they get in the way of serving God. Anonymous, God's love has been poured out into your heart for those people. In fact, for everybody, but for those people. So if you say you love someone so much, I can't serve Jesus, then you don't really understand at all what that love of God is for. So no, it's not possible to love someone too much. It's possible that your perspective on that love has gone astray a little bit. But it's never possible to love someone too much. Uh, I can point you to the Genesis chapter 22 when God asked Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. And the reason he did that, this was a test. Abraham uh, became so enamored with the gift of God, this, the, the child born to him supernaturally, that... that uh, Isaac began to take the place of God in Abraham's heart. So there had to be a test, and that test was, okay, Abraham, who do you love more, me or Isaac? And Abraham wrestled with it. It'd be the hardest thing anybody would ever be asked to do. And yet, God clearly knew that Abraham would pass the test. He never intended for Isaac to be killed. But he did want to find out, more to the point he wanted Abraham to find out where his heart really was. And his priorities were adjusted. So just make sure your priorities are where they're supposed to be. And believe me, Jesus will take care of the rest. So thank you for that. Let's go to Lucy holding on line one. Lucy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Uh, thank Hi. you for having me on the air. Uh, mm -hmm. I have a question about the story of the talents and the three servants that were given um it's in matthew 25 14 to 33 and my question is uh what do we need to know about this story for us here today and in our in the place where we are here today um and how does god react to us when we are not good stewards of what he gives us um, it seems like the the one that hid his talent, uh, it seems like he kind of got scolded or punished. And does God do <laughs> that today? Because I've heard you say that God is not 
a God of wrath, and especially to his children that belong to him and that we've given our lives to Christ completely, that he doesn't pour out his wrath, but he does chastise us or correct us. So can you put your spin on this uh, (laughs) according to what you see in the Bible? Because I know you explain it in a really good way, and I always (laughs) understand how you explain things. Thank you, Lucy. I can do that. You know, uh, Matthew 24 and 25 is the Olivet Discourse. And um, in Matthew 25, Jesus begins uh, teaching them again in parables. And these parables are about readiness and stewardship. Now, you remember that the um, um, first parable, um, the, the ten virgins, um, it was simply about being ready. We don't know when he's coming. We don't know when the, the, the bridegroom is going to come. And we need to be ready for the celebration. Well, obviously, the import of that for us is that we've got to be ready. Jesus is coming soon. And we've got to live our lives in a constant state of readiness. And uh, when when the, the, the five virgins who weren't ready were asking for help, there was no help available. So we who are believers need to be ready. Now, not only do we need to be ready, but we also need to be good stewards of what Jesus is giving to us. Uh, In the Olivet Discourse, Jesus left his disciples with this really important word. It's watch. Not not just look, but but, but like to be on watch. Sort of like a a military guy doing guard duty. You've got to be on watch. Jesus, when he tells this parable, he's leaving this world, he's preparing them for his return, and he's going to tell them this is what being watchful means. So he's talking about our personal stewardship over that which Jesus left us in charge. So what he's doing is simple. The familiar pattern in the opening verses, we've got a long absent master away on a long journey. Now it's familiar to us because Jesus has been away a long time. He's been away for nearly 2,000 years. And uh, and he has left us, the Church of Jesus Christ, individual Christians, in charge of this world. We're caretakers uh, over that which belongs to him. And we need to be ready. We're the ones awaiting his return. It gives us instructions for living here on earth. Um, so the key question, I think, in all of this is what do the talents represent? Uh, it doesn't mean the same thing as our word talent. Sometimes people read this and say, well, I can sing, so I need... And while it's true, you're going to use your gifts to, to glorify God. That's not what is going on here. Um, in biblical times, talent was money. Uh, and actually, talent was a lot of it. It was um, uh, roughly the equivalent of $1,000. Um, so in this parable, the master has given a considerable treasure to his servants for safekeeping and for investing, and each talent is to be treated as though it was of exceptional value. Well, our talent, the treasure we've been given, is this gospel. And so we've got to invest it in the parable in Matthew chapter 13 of, of the, the parable of the sower. Uh, we, we've been entrusted with the word of God, and we've got to scatter the word. We've got to sow the word of God wherever we go. So these talents, this this treasure that we've been left with is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we've got to be responsible for what we do. Now, he gave each servant different amounts. Uh, Verse 15 says he gave them to each man according to his ability. And, and, uh, you know, there are some Christians who are more gifted than others, and and it's foolish not to acknowledge that. So... These talents are distributed to us and we're to use them. And when we use them according to the will of God, then we will all get the same reward. The guy with more talents doesn't get a bigger reward. The one who's faithful with a little is treated as the same in terms of rewards as the one who's faithful in a lot. And that's because the master benefits and we need to be walking in the fear of God, doing what he told us to do. So those are the kind of talents that are involved. When he comes back, Lucy, and and he sees that two have been faithful and the other one hasn't been faithful, he's really being very direct and saying, 
you're a wicked, lazy servant. You should have at least done something with my talent. And um, he didn't make full use of the talents. And so he is um, rebuked. Now, for us, remember Jesus is talking about Jews, talking to Jews. His ministry is Jewish. So his message to the people he was talking to is slightly different than ours. The Jews were the ones who were the stewards over the, the law of God. And they, they, they were the unfaithful servants who did nothing with it for you and for me as Christians. We're going to stand before Jesus on the, the reward seat of Christ. We're going to stand before the Lord and give account of what we did with this treasure we've been given. And if we're not faithful, Jesus is going to say to us, um, assuming you're really born again, there's going to be a rebuke and a loss of rewards. So that's what this is all about. It's just about stewardship, Lucy. Thank you very much. 340-9585. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. If you're outside the local area, toll free is 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand up for life. We'll be back in two minutes. back to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of the program 340-9585 i had somebody recently say why do you say the phone number so much and the answer is because I don't want you to forget the number because you guys are more interesting than I am. We'd love to have your calls. Lucy, I had to rush a little bit as we came to the end of the, the first half hour. So uh, I want to talk just a little bit more about your parable and about the one man uh, who uh, misjudged Jesus and didn't really do anything. He said... Uh, I knew that you're a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you not scattered seed. Now, this man obviously failed in his responsibilities as a steward. I want you to think about something for a moment. You're a Christian, not you, Lucy. This isn't about you. you, you I, I know you, you share everywhere you go. But think about this just for a moment. You're a Christian. God has given you this wonderful treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you don't tell anybody about it. How would you ever explain, well, you know, religion is personal. I don't want to offend anybody. I could lose my job. We got another reason. We're in the same boat as this man who Jesus is going to call unfaithful. He failed in his responsibilities. We do exactly the same thing and we make excuses for it. He said he was afraid. So he went out and hid your talent in the ground. And then he gives him back what belongs to him. We won't be able to do that on the day we stand before the Lord. He'll show us rewards that he had for us that he won't be able to give us. And so what we need to remember is that this treasure that he's given us, gospel, I would also add the spiritual gifts that he's given us. We've been in a, a very long study from from chapter 12, we just finished chapter 14, speaking about spiritual gifts. We've been given spiritual gifts, and we we are not good stewards of them. We don't do anything with them. We sort of push them down because it makes other people uncomfortable, or more to the point, it probably makes us uncomfortable. But we need to remember everything that he gave us belongs to him, and it has to be used for his glory. So... Uh, we need to understand that, and that's why Jesus calls him a wicked, lazy servant. And um, what happens then is that he's going to lose his rewards. So for us, Lucy, this isn't about our salvation. This is about our rewards. And even as I say that, it's going to be a very difficult moment in eternity when we stand before the Lord and he doesn't have any rewards to give us because we buried the treasures that he gave us. Remember, it's about readiness and stewardship. The way we're ready for the Lord's return is to be good stewards over that which he's given us. Thank you, Lucy. 
Here is a question from our email inbox from Chip. He said, Pastor Ron, I love to think things through and make sense of things, issues, or problems. I've been trying to figure out a way of how the Israelites had to rid yeast from within their borders. And he's basing that on Exodus 13, beginning verse 6. It says, For seven days you're to eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten during those seven days. Nothing leavened may be found among you, nor shall leaven be found anywhere within your borders. So his question is, if you know, how did they practically work that out? Well, the, the principal application here, um, chip is in the homes of individual Jews. And and actually, over the, the centuries, Jewish fathers would actually make a game. Uh, they would get rid of all of the, the, the yeast. They would plant in a hiding place before the Passover now. They would hide a, just a little tiny bit of, of, of leaven, uh, and they, they would have their children search the house, just uprooting everything to find it. And then when they found it, they'd have a celebration, get rid of it, and then they would would begin the, the Passover celebration. So that's what's principally involved. Now, remember, there are always Jews that didn't celebrate Passovers, and they didn't celebrate the feast. There were secular Jews then, just as there are secular Jews now. The important thing for us to remember is the, the, the value of this as a picture for us. In the Bible, yeast or leaven is a picture or type of sin. And in order for the Passover to be consumed, in order for the Passover to be effective, it had to be a, a perfect lamb, and he wiped away all the sin. So the picture was when Jesus comes, he will wipe away all the sin, there will be no more yeast. And that's what matters to us. Um, Israel, individual Jews, uh, individual communities weren't responsible to go out on a yeast hunt and make sure there was no yeast in the borders of Israel. So that's, that's thinking it through a little bit too literally. The idea was the symbols, no sin. The Passover is, is the covering over of sin. Um, uh, we were spared death. The wages of sin is death. We're spared death, they would say, because the sin, um, the sin was covered over. And so that's the issue, Chip. So it's not that they had to ye- literally go out and search parties to find, make sure there was no door-to-door yeast in anybody's house. That was the responsibility of individual people as well. And I think that's another important picture for us. Um, it's our responsibility to make sure that the, the leaven in our life, the sin in our life, has been removed, and it can only be removed one way, by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's a good question. Thank you, Chip. Brenda says, Bethel music, is it okay to listen to or no? Um, Brenda, I think it depends on the individual song and the lyrics in that song. Um, Generally speaking, uh, there's nothing positive about Bethel ministries. Uh, it is a, a, a horrible church, a false teaching church, um, false revivals, false prophets, false everything. And it's not good. Now, here's the problem with Bethel music. They're really talented musicians, and our worship leaders like the music, and so too do the people in the in the audiences when we're going through worship. But here's the problem with Bethel music. Bethel is using it, I think, the same way that Hillsong did some years ago. Um, um, They use the music to make inroads into otherwise healthy churches. So I would say, as a general rule, it's probably not good to listen to Bethel music. But if you really like it, and there's nothing unbiblical about the particular lyrics in that particular song, then I think what you need to do is you need to, to listen to it. It's okay. I wouldn't brag about, oh, this Bethel song is out. You don't want to expose other people to it. They may not be, Brenda, as mature or as discerning as you are. So if you want to enjoy it, you enjoy it. Just make sure you're not enjoying um um, false lyrics, and there are so many, so many that are false lyrics. And by the way, it's not just Bethel, it's Jesus Culture, it's uh, Hillsong. Uh, some of the great worship songs of my, I'm 30 years in the Lord, some of the great worship songs of my Christian life are, are Hillsong songs. Shout to the Lord, probably the 
best worship song ever. The fact that it was written by people that had terrible doctrine doesn't do any damage to the song. So I would say listen to it, but don't listen to music that is not biblically accurate. You know, one of the things I do, I, I don't get involved in worship here. I've I've been blessed, you know, 26 years here, and uh, I've had two worship pastors, just two. And uh, such a such a blessing. Both men have been so faithful. And so I just don't get involved. I, I know their hearts. I, I know the, their walk with the Lord. So I don't have to worry. But every once in a while, a song will be saying, I'll say, yeah, we're not going to do that one anymore. You know, the lyric is unbiblical or... There's a song, uh, Love Like a Hurricane. I can't think who does it, but but it, it, it's just silly. It's dumb. Uh, there's another song that we do, um, um, the, the crazy something love of God. The, the, I can't think of the, the adjective now, but, you know, we, we, we want to be respectful. And, Brenda, I tell people here all the time, when you're singing songs to Jesus, and when they're playing it and you're, you're probably singing along with it, um, you need to pay special attention to the lyrics. You need to be living a life that is consistent with the words that you're singing. And that's why worship can be so tricky and why the enemy seems to always attack churches from within their worship ministry. Not so with us. Every time we have worship at this church, I know the people that are singing it. I know their hearts. And I knew their stories. I know how faithful they've been to God. And I know how faithful God has been to them. Uh, and, you know, it's just it's just a delight for me. I, I just, Pastor Lane and his team um, just bless us abundantly. And then we've got uh, David uh, who who uh, does some Spanish songs, but he, but, he, but he also worships, leads worship on Friday nights. Uh, Amy sometimes on Wednesday nights. I know their hearts. And that makes everything that they sing just absolutely beautiful. Thank you for the question. Here's a question from Jasmine. Uh, she says, John 21 counts 153 fish that were caught. Is there a symbolic meaning of that exact number? Uh, Jasmine, the, the the only meaning there, and I've had people, and, and sometimes I've, I've actually seen commentators write whole chapters on this trying to figure out what the symbolism of 153, why that number, there must be some numerology in there. I'm going to tell you, you can write this down. Here's why John 21 specifies 153 fish were caught. Because it wasn't 152, and it wasn't 154, it was 153. So they're just reporting the numbers accurately. That's the number of fish that they caught. There's nothing deeper than that at all. No symbolism to be found, uh, no secret code, no anything. It's just that they happened to catch 153 fish. If they caught 150, it was 150. If they caught 50 fish, it was 50 fish and all. And that would have been a huge catch as well. But it's just reporting accurately the number of fish that were caught. No other secret meanings at all. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Margie asks a difficult question. Pastor Ron, is there a right way to leave a church? Do I have to explain why I am leaving? Um, Margie, without more details, I'm going to have to be really, really general. Um, of course there's a right way to leave a church. You never want to leave a church angry. You never want to leave a church um, uh, saying bad things about the church or about the people there. Uh, you don't want to, to to talk smack about their doctrine or anything else. Uh, leave like a Christian. Leave like a Christian. Um, I, I don't think you have to explain why you're leaving. If you're leaving because of some area the church fell short or or some way that you were let down, I think it might be helpful to them to hear you can go to the pastor or one of the pastors and say, I've been coming to this church for so many years, but I'm leaving and I wanted to explain to you why. 
I'm not angry, but I want to explain. And then, and, and it gives them an opportunity to make some changes if, in fact, your criticisms are valid. But you don't need to do that. We're not compelled. Churches don't own you. If you are a member of a church, uh, you may want to cancel your membership. Take, be, be, have your name and number and addresses taken off of the church rolls. But those are strictly decisions that you want to make based on what makes you comfortable. But while there's a lot of wrong ways to leave church, um, I I don't think there has to be a prescribed effort. You know, one of the things, Margie, that I've never understood, and I've I've run into this several times over our years here, uh, people who have come to Calvary Chapel having left other churches, I've actually had their pastors call and say, say, I haven't freed them to come to your church. I say, you don't need to free them. We're free in Christ. Well, he is a member, she's a member, and and uh, until they get right with us, or until they come and explain to us, I just said, you know, that's that's authority that you don't have, it's authority that I don't have. Now, I want to know if somebody left the church because they were in sin. I don't want them to be able to escape church discipline. But when somebody walks in the door and their heart is right, they just decided that the Spirit is moving them and they want to move, Then, then, you know, we receive them with open arms. But uh, under normal circumstances, I think the best way to leave is to let people know so they don't worry about you or wonder about you. Uh, it is always frustrating when people just disappear. You have no explanation. But but having said that, Margie, I want to repeat, you are under no obligation to explain to them. You can do so if you want to. Uh, you can do so. Maybe you should do so if, in fact, uh, it might help them. But beyond that, that's an individual decision that you need to make. Good question. Richard said, When I'm praying, why doesn't God make the answers to my prayers more clear? How can I hear him better? Um, Richard, I think sometimes when we pray, we're, we're sort of expecting, it's like we're putting pressure on God to, to answer my prayers. Uh, praying is a matter of faith. Praying is a matter of relationship. Now, I can tell you that God always answers your prayers. Sometimes he says yes, sometimes he says no, and sometimes he says wait. But he always hears and answers your prayers as long as your fellowship with God hasn't been broken by sin. But I think the reason he doesn't make answers more clear is because he wants us to learn who he is and walk by faith in who he is. You know, I think too many of us, we want such a clear answer that we don't have to exercise faith any longer. Well, God said to do this, so I know to do this. This is the next step. Um, But God says, how about trusting me? How about trusting me? What do you think God wants? He wants to show you that, that he's the one really in control. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. He who began a good work will be faithful to complete. I think a lot of times, Richard, we take the approach that we're the ones, God is faithful. We have to be faithful to finish. And and sometimes we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to know exactly the right answer. I have found, and I'm going to embarrass myself a bit, Richard, when I first got saved, and and maybe for the first three years, um, I had this prayer relationship. I had a bunch of prayers. My life was a mess. And I just said, okay, Lord. And and I would beg him, Lord, take me to heaven. Show me some way that, you know, he took Paul to heaven. I wasn't talking about dying. But but take me to heaven and show me if I'm wrong, I want to serve you. My heart is right. And God wanted to teach me that as long as my heart was right, I didn't have to be right. And so I never got answers to those prayers. I actually believed there was a time when I would get to the point where I would be so mature and so close to Jesus that, that I would hear so clearly from him that there would never be any doubt or any ambiguity. But if that were the case, Richard, none of us would ever walk by faith. And if we don't walk by faith, it's impossible to please God. So here's what I think he wants you to do. He wants you to make sure that there's nothing keeping your prayers from being answered. He wants you to get to a place where, assuming your heart is right with God, that you're willing to receive the answer according to His will rather than your will. And if those two things are in place, I think God wants to start teaching you how to walk by faith. And to do that, you've got to realize He's the one in charge. 
and the single greatest source of comfort for me as Paula's husband, as the pastor here at Calvary Chapel, there's a lot of neat things and, you know, few bad decisions. I could ruin it all. But the thing that's made the most comfort, has been the source of the most peace, is that if my heart is right with God, if I'm walking with Jesus, he'll redirect my steps. I also find out, Richard, and I say this half-jokingly, but it's absolutely 100% true. Uh, God has taught me that I am on a need-to-know basis with God. And evidently, he doesn't think I need to know as much as I think I need to know. And I think that might be a word for you, Richard. I think sometimes uh, Jesus is just saying, hey, do what you think is right. We talk, we walk, you pray. Let's. You're in the word. Do what you think is right. And you make a mistake and God just kind of giggles and turns you around and fixes it. He has stopped me, Richard, from doing some horrible things. There was a, a time when I was so focused on a building, as, as you may or may not know, Richard, we, we have a, a small church building. It's kind of tacky, and it, it's, it's beautiful on the inside when all the people are here. But, but um, um, I, I just thought, well, nobody's going to take us seriously. We don't have a church building. Everybody has a church building but me. And I was so focused on a church building that I bought one. I mean, I actually bought one. I made the deal. When we were signing the papers... There was a change. And when that change came to light, it was as though Jesus was sitting in the room telling me, this isn't of me. And he was giving me the way out. And I could have still forced the deal. But had I done so, Richard, we wouldn't be here today. I certainly wouldn't be here today. That building would have bankrupted our church and would have stopped the work that God has been doing through us from ever getting started. That's how important it is. Remember, it depends on him. Thank you. I got uh, one more question that just came in, anonymous, from our email inbox. Speaking of books, the book called The Jewish Jesus that you also recommend, do you know the author? Uh, I don't. It's not the title. That's the wrong title, anonymous. It's The Life and Times of the Messiah. And I recommend that book wholeheartedly. Uh, the author is Alfred Edersheim, E-D-E-R-S-H-E-I-M. And it is a book that is now, it's available um, in public domain. He's been dead for a hundred years. Um, uh, but but, but it, it, it underscores the, the, the Jewishness of Jesus' ministry and gives you a different look uh, and, and I personally don't think anybody should ever try to teach the Gospels without that book in their library. It is a difficult read. It is very scholarly, but it is really, really great. You can buy it, The Life and Times of the Messiah. Uh, I think it's so valuable that everyone ought to have it in their library. But it is also available online for free. And you can look at it that way. The, the Life and Times of the Messiah by Alfred Edersheim. Thank you for the question. Okay, I think I've got time for one more question. Patty says, is there anything Jesus doesn't know? He said he didn't know when he was coming back. Well, obviously Jesus now knows when he's coming back. But the reference to the Son of Man doesn't know the hour. No one knows the hour, not even the Son. Uh, that's, that's referring to his return to earth. When he was here, as a human, now remember Philippians chapter two. This is the kenosis of God. Um, um, Jesus emptied himself as deity, so his father knew, but Jesus, when he was walking here, didn't know because that wasn't part of his mission. Jesus, evidently, unlike us, wasn't so curious that he had to know everything. I love the fact, Patty, that Jesus got his orders day by day. No wonder Jesus was so eager to pray that he would often spend the entire night praying. It was interesting when he went out to pick his disciples before that day when he when he called them, follow me, he was out praying all night. The Father was telling him who to call. Just one day at a time, demonstrating for us the way that we should walk as well. So when Jesus was here, that information was veiled from him. But when he 
was resurrected and ascended into heaven, of course he is God with all of the 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 characteristics of God, all of the attributes of God, and he knows everything, and he knows exactly when he's coming back. So, Patty, um, there's nothing he doesn't know, but there were things that were kept from him while he was a human on earth. Um, all of that gone when he ascended into heaven. I think I got two minutes. Mm-hmm. I got uh, time for one more. Bill says, did the Israelites who died in the wilderness go to heaven? The answer, Bill, is no. That's the short answer. Um, um, but but they perish, remember, in the wilderness because of unbelief. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. So uh, th- they didn't get a pass. In fact, God, th- their, their response, their, their lack of trust in God angered him. And he waited till every last one, save Joshua and Caleb, they were the two who said, no, let's go do this. I'm just reading in Deuteronomy right now uh, in my personal reading. And, uh, and and Caleb was fierce. I mean, Caleb was absolutely fierce in, in uh, we can do this. Let's go. God's given us this land. Uh, and and they they made fun of Caleb and Joshua. And so 40 years, Caleb and Joshua were punished for the sins of other people. But those who perished in the wilderness died because you can't get to heaven without faith in God. It's that simple. And that always upsets people. But they're Jews, and they were promised them by the covenant to Abraham. But, but remember, that's to Israel. Israel means governed by God, not individual Jews. Every individual who's ever lived gets to heaven the same way. Hey, thank you for the question, Bill. Remember, tonight we got our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies at 7 o'clock. Uh, you've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.